From the McKinsey Global Institute, it's Forward Thinking with Michael Chewy and Janet Bush. Michael, if you were to guess, how many people are there in the world that we define as middle class? Well, you kind of put me on the spot here. I'm not sure I could put an exact number to it. I'm sure it depends on what we define as middle class. But I'm sure that the share of those in middle class and the total world's population will have risen a lot, you know, as prosperity has, you know, grown, particularly in emerging and developing parts of the world. Well, interestingly, our guest today confirms that half the world's population is now middle class or richer. You've put that in absolute numbers. That's four billion people. And by 2030, that could be five billion. But what's fascinating is how the middle class is changing and how central the middle class is to some of the great challenges we face. Huh. I really look forward to listening in on this conversation. Homi Karas is a senior fellow in the Centre for Sustainable Development at the Brookings Institution and also co-founder of World Data Lab. He studies policies and trends influencing developing countries, the emergence of the world's middle class and global governance. He's collaborated with the McKinsey Global Institute on research into consumers in emerging markets and economic empowerment. And his latest book is The Rise of the Global Middle Class, How the Search for the Good Life Can Change the World. So welcome to our podcast, Homie. Thank you, Janet. Tell our listeners a little bit about your background, where you were educated, where you were brought up, and how you developed this life of yours. Well, I was uh, born in uh, Karachi, Pakistan. At that time, it was the uh, capital of a uh, very poor uh, country. Uh, I moved around quite a bit as a uh, kid because my father was a uh, diplomat, so I went to school in uh, lots of uh, countries, but I ended up in England for uh, middle and high school. I started at uh, Cambridge University as a uh, physicist, Uh, soon gave that up as being way too difficult, switched to economics, and then uh, came over to uh, Harvard to uh, get my PhD. I joined the World Bank and was bitten by what I would call the policy bug, which is the idea that one can make a difference in the lives of millions of people by influencing policymakers. Sounds very sensible. And, and and how nice to find out that you were born in Karachi, because I lived there as a kid. My my dad was a banker and therefore also peripatetic. <laughs> yeah, we probably went to the same school then, uh, Janet. <laughs> so listen, in your new book, you highlight the fact that we've now reached the point at which half the world's population is middle class or richer, 4 billion people. And by 2030, that could be 5 billion. So what's driven that enormous growth and what could continue to drive it? I think the simplest answer I can give is technology. It was technology that started the emergence of the middle class in the 19th century when it became clear that you know, literate clerks were needed to write contracts between banks and factory owners so the latter could expand. The technology of the Industrial Revolution drove the need for a healthy, educated population, and that drove a demand for teachers, doctors, nurses. Productivity started to rise, and that brought uh, about a rise in uh, wages. Uh, So there's definitely a technology story. But I think the deeper story is politics. Middle-class expansion was associated in the West with a growth in the number of people eligible to vote, what we would simply call democratization. And in many countries, the middle class has supported and in turn benefited from labor unions. So the middle class I would describe as the pro-capitalism wing of the labor movement. 
But in the last 30 years or so, I think we should add globalization to this list. Without globalization, the accelerated speed of middle-class expansion just would not have been possible. And it's quite remarkable, I think, to uh, imagine that it took maybe 150 years for the middle class to reach 1 billion people from roughly, you know, 1825, 1830 to 1975. Then another 31 years for the second billion to enter the middle class, 1975 to 2006. And then just eight years for the third and fourth billion. And that's all due to globalization. So, of course, we've hit a slow patch in globalization now. But the large countries in Southeast Asia and South Asia are continuing to power the middle class forward towards 5 billion, thanks to the strength of their economies and participation in global trade. Well, you say in your book that it's a remarkable figure that China alone has added a half a billion people to the ranks of the middle classes, as you say, in eight years. And that's about half the entire increase in the middle class from two to three between 2006 and 2014. Does this change the nature of the global middle class? Yes, I think it does. China's middle class emerged just at the time when the middle class in the West has felt increased anxiety. And some people have even argued that the growth of China's middle class has weakened the Western middle class. I don't subscribe to that point of view. But the emergence of the middle class in China has actually revealed a split in the global middle class that's quite new. Before, the middle class always used to think that a growing middle class in other places uh, was, was good for them. Now they're not quite so sure. Is that a function of the fact that we are so obviously now in a multipolar world? There's more rivalry, there's more contestation, and there's more worry about what other people are doing. I think it's a reflection of that fact. Uh, but I think that in a multipolar world where the middle class is really uh, spread everywhere, it gives us a chance and an opportunity to now start to think about global problems and global collective action in a way that we never did before. If you were to just say we're in a world of geopolitical rivalries, you would never then imagine that the world could actually get together on some critical issues. But they are starting to get together on some critical issues, and that's because their middle class is pushing them to address these things because these are existential issues for the middle class in every country. We'll come back to the existential issues, which is fascinating. But just to give our listeners a sense of the overall importance of the middle class, how do they shape our world? Very big question. Well, they shape our world clearly by politics, as I uh, said, but not just by uh, politics. They're shaping our world by uh, their influence on uh, the business sector. Uh, the middle class increasingly, for example, is uh, looking to push corporates to be more sustainable. Businesses would not have gone down this road by themselves. They're doing it because their customers want them to uh, do it. They're pushing capital markets to be more sustainable. The most dynamic part of global capital markets uh, these days is the issuance of sustainability bonds. This is a very new uh, phenomenon. Uh, they're, influencing, uh, they're influencing the media. Every time you hear something 
uh, going viral, for example. What it really means is that the middle class has seized on this as an issue and is trying to uh, elevate it. Uh, so in so many different ways, they're influencing uh, all parts of our uh, lives. Uh, and of course, influencing governments is at the heart of that. And actually, you've even made the point that in China, with its very different political system from, from say, mine in, in the UK, that the Chinese middle classes are also exerting an influence. They're using their voice, for example, on sustainability. There's pressure to really go for net zero in China um, and also on, on issues like food safety. No question. Digital media is tremendous and they're making their views heard. Food safety, for example, became a uh, big issue in China because of various uh, scandals with uh, tainted uh, milk. Uh, environmental issues have become uh, really big. Uh, there were terrible uh, uh, episodes in uh, uh, Beijing of uh, uh, smog, just like the Great London smog in the uh, 1950s, a very similar kind of uh, weather occurrence. So the leadership has essentially responded to all of these pressures coming from the middle class. Nobody wants to be in middle class and not be able to go outside with their uh, children to play in a park because they can't breathe the air. Of course. So I want to discuss what it means financially in real terms. What does becoming middle class mean for a household? Well, I think it means, um, it means uh, so many different things. First and foremost, it means that one is freed from the immediate anxieties of uh, everyday uh, living. When you're in the uh, middle class, you have enough money to be able to uh, take a vacation, to eat out, to go to the movies, spend on other forms of uh, entertainment. You're actually making choices. When you're very poor, you don't have the ability to make those kinds of choices because you're just desperately trying to uh, survive. But I think that this notion of choice, responsibility, control over your life is really what being a middle class uh, means. Middle class households have um, consumer durables. They, they have houses and refrigerators and uh, cars. Middle class households are resilient if a family member falls sick. It's not a, uh, a massive uh, disaster. They can uh, recover. Similarly, if somebody is uh, unemployed. And I would say middle-class households really have uh, hope. They have hope and opportunities for improvement in their own lives and, of course, in their, uh, the lives of their uh, children and uh, family. There's a little bit of a downside that comes with being in the middle class, uh, we've clearly seen tremendous amounts of uh, stress and overwork as uh, people uh, try to stay in the uh, middle class. And people in the middle class uh, worry about falling out of the uh, middle class. And, uh, you know, they, they, they hate uncertainty. So it's not, it's not all what I would call a uh, good thing. But I would certainly say it's a uh, better thing than uh, being poor. And even, I would argue, a better thing than being, uh, than being uh, really rich. And uh, it's extraordinary to see the uh, science of how uh, uh, rich people uh, don't actually have such, a, uh, such an enjoyable, uh, good life, at least according to uh, 
most of the scientific uh, research that we have on uh, happiness. Well, the fact that the science says that the rich aren't necessarily happy is quite good for us middle-class people. So I guess we don't need to be that envious. But as you say, being middle-class is better than being poor. And there's still a lot of poor people. But I think there's a lot of debate about how we measure that. Internationally, we've been using $2.15 a day as the extreme poverty line. But what is beyond that? And I believe you helped MGI to de- to develop the empowerment line, which we published recently in in our report from poverty to empowerment, where people have the essential needs, um, reduced risk of slipping back into poverty. And we've set that at $12 a day in purchasing power parity. What, what, what is that level like in terms of comfort level? So the empowerment line is actually the uh, same as the uh, line the lower threshold for uh, entering the uh, middle class. And the reason for that is that it's one thing to have a poverty line which reflects the where people are actually living in uh, poverty. But as I mentioned, if you want to consider yourself to be middle class, you want to be reasonably sure that your risk of falling into poverty is quite low. That means really having to have an an income level and uh, spending power that's quite considerably higher than the uh, poverty line, and uh, in fact, roughly speaking, uh, five times uh, higher. Uh, And that's why we've set this so-called empowerment line at $12 uh, a day per person. It is a uh, line where you can be relatively uh, sure that if you do have a spell of unemployment or a uh, major sickness in the uh, family, it's not going to uh, knock you into uh, poverty. You will be able to uh, recover uh, reasonably uh, easily. And as I uh, said, you will uh, be making real life choices about most of your uh, money and uh, spending. You're uh, going to be uh, looking to see can I afford this at this price? Is this something that I uh, really want to uh, do? You're, uh, you're, you're making your everyday uh, budget uh, choices. And uh, that's what we really mean by empowerment. You're, in, you're, you're at a level where most of your economic decisions are made by choice, not just by uh, being forced because you're uh, trying to uh, just simply uh, uh, find enough money to buy uh, food to uh, survive. How does World Data Lab, which you co-founded, measure living standards? Well, we uh, measure the uh, living standards by uh, looking at uh, how much uh, households spend on their uh, daily living. Uh, Of course, we uh, make adjustments for how many people there are in a household. We make adjustments for uh, price level uh, changes, uh, both over time and between countries. So that's what uh, economists call purchasing power parity uh, dollars. And we get most of this data from publicly available consumer expenditure surveys, from household budget surveys. But then what we do is we uh, actually match that data with uh, estimates that we get from uh, national income accounts about total personal consumption in a uh, country, uh, because that allows us to account uh, for the uh, underreporting bias that you often get in uh, surveys. You know, if you ask somebody how much did you spend on uh, something, they're occasionally reluctant to uh, tell you the uh, full truth, or they may simply uh, not really know exactly uh, uh, the uh, answer to that uh, question. 
so you do have to make some adjustments to these uh, survey data. And then, of course, you have some uh, countries where you simply don't have uh, surveys. And there, again, we use statistical uh, techniques to uh, look for other countries where we uh, do have the uh, surveys and uh, uh, see what their characteristics uh, are. It's a uh, technique called uh, twinning. Uh, we even uh, uh, made some estimates for uh, North Korea uh, that we uh, got partly by uh, using nightlight data from uh, satellites. So it's a, it's a big statistical exercise uh, that we update uh, twice every year to uh, you know, keep incorporating uh, new data as it becomes available. Well, it's been very, very useful for MGI, I must say. So listen, let's um, talk about the net zero transition, climate change, and that. And you write in your book that the global middle class's vast appetite for consumption is responsible for much of the man-made impact on the planet and is therefore a danger of becoming the greatest threat to itself. Tell us more. I think on uh, carbon emissions, the uh, issues have become uh, patently uh, clear. Uh, We all see what's happening Uh, We all need to uh, make sure that we link uh, these uh, natural disasters uh, directly with our own fairly insatiable appetite for cheap goods and travel. Uh, What the middle class has done is asked the uh, business world to supply it with huge amounts of goods at the lowest possible uh, price and the ability to, uh, you know, fly and go anywhere. Uh, So it's really as the size of the middle class expands with this kind of structure in the economy, it is uh, really putting pressure on the amount of carbon emissions that the uh, planet can uh, handle and contributing to uh, global warming. But that's not the only uh, issue. Uh, We don't talk about this uh, so much, but waste disposal is another absolutely massive problem that arises from middle-class uh, consumption, especially of plastics, which we much of which we just throw away after a uh, single use. You know, we will probably have more plastic in the oceans than fish by 2050. So it's it's really quite disappointing and and deeply dangerous that we've got an economic system that spoils nature in this way. But I don't want to say that this is inevitable, an inevitable part of having a middle-class society. I I want to emphasize that this is a choice that we've made, and it's a choice for which we're paying a terrible price. But there are other choices if we just simply change our behavior a little bit. Imagine if you were to just eliminate lamb and beef from people's diets. We could return an area the size of North America to nature. Just think of what that would do to restore biodiversity and natural carbon sinks. And there are so many other ways that we can use technology, especially when supported by government regulation, to reduce the massive amount of uh, waste in our current uh, system. But we just have to stop thinking of nature as providing services for free and recognize that the nature itself has some uh, limits, there are some uh, boundaries, uh, and we can't surpass them. 
The scale of the problem is so huge. I think that you say that to get to net zero, um, the middle class has to cut its greenhouse gas consumption by about 60% in 10 years. Is there any chance that that will happen? And how? Oh, I think there is. You know, it's a uh, tall order. And uh, let me say, I'm not talking about getting to net zero in uh, 10 years. I'm talking about getting us on a uh, path which will allow us to get to net zero fast enough so that we maintain temperature increases between one and a half and two degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels. You know, we know that reducing uh, greenhouse gas emissions is possible. We already see huge differences across countries in the uh, magnitude of their uh, emissions, uh, which is um, uh, largely because of government policies and uh, choices. So the process, I think, is actually quite simple. It starts with converting all our electricity generation to renewables, phasing out coal and other fossil fuels. Then once we are used to getting power from electricity, we have to use it everywhere on the demand side. So that means no more gas-powered cars, no more hot water heaters or stoves that run on uh, natural uh, gas. Uh, Making investments in this transition is already starting to happen in advanced uh, economies. The International Energy Association estimates that we will probably spend $1.7 trillion of investment this year alone in that kind of uh, uh, investment. So the process is starting in some places, but it's still much too uh, slow. A harder part is perhaps step three, which is changing our habits. We actually have to change our habits. No more beef and mutton, no more short-haul flights, many fewer long-haul flights, The middle class has to become more sustainable in what it chooses to consume, in how it moves around, in how it controls the temperature in the buildings where we uh, live and work. And it will only do this if it is given incentives to uh, do it and if it thinks that everybody else is also contributing. And that's why we need governments, government regulations, government taxes and subsidies to start to move the needle. Yes, you talk about avoid, shift and improve. So avoid medium and long haul flights or or driving the car so often. Shift to public transport, reduce meat consumption, local produce and improve energy efficiency. And you advocate policy action for all those three. Tell us a bit more about that and what kind of policies should be coming. Well, There's a mixture, I think, of uh, tax and subsidy uh, policies here in the United States, for example, with uh, uh, what's called the Inflation uh, Reduction Act. There are now uh, substantial uh, subsidies for uh, homeowners to uh, install uh, solar solar power in uh, some places. There are uh, regulatory uh, policies in the uh, European uh, Union. Uh, I believe the uh, plan is to uh, ban sales of uh, new cars with uh, fossil fuel, with gas, uh, basically with internal combustion engines by uh, 2035. If you remember several years ago, pretty much around the uh, world, people banned 
incandescent uh, governments banned incandescent light bulbs. And uh, there's been a dramatic revolution in the uh, way in which everybody has switched over to uh, uh, much more efficient uh, light bulbs. So regulation is uh, hugely uh, powerful. But I also want to emphasize that governments have to invest. The biggest obstacle to uh, renewable energy in the United States right now is the uh, waiting time to get a uh, connection to the uh, grid. Uh, Governments, which are largely in charge of the uh, transmission lines, uh, haven't been investing enough in upgrading their uh, electricity uh, grids. So we need them to do that. If you want people to take public transport, you have to build metro systems. Metro systems, for example, are unlikely to be purely uh, private operated. They're almost always done in some kind of a uh, partnership with the uh, government. Uh, And finally, there's no question that we're going to need lots more new technologies. And historically, governments have always had a role to play in supporting uh, uh, research and uh, development. Uh, And so I hope that they will uh, continue to do that as well. Of course, um, countries in different parts of the world are in very different positions. We have new research on Asia and the cusp of a new era which talks about how challenging the energy transition will be because Asia is still industrializing. Industry is such a heavy weight in those economies and is so difficult to decarbonize. So I suppose the broad question is, can we meet the aspirations of populations that may not all all have got to the middle classes, all be as prosperous as, say, in the West? Can Can we meet their aspirations and at the same time get to net zero? I think we absolutely uh, can. The uh, biggest obstacle uh, actually in many of these uh, countries is the uh, cost of finance. Uh, The economics of moving towards uh, sustainable uh, uh, power production have really changed in the uh, last few years to uh, favor uh, solar, offshore wind, even onshore uh, wind. Actually, uh, the price of electricity, the price of power that is generated with these new technologies can actually come down quite considerably. And that would be a tremendous boost to the small and medium businesses in all of these economies. So we've shifted the economic thinking from one where sustainability is something that will only be achieved at a cost to society to a uh, narrative that says actually sustainability offers one of the great new opportunities for accelerating uh, growth across the uh, economy if we can only get it right. And the way to get it right is to uh, make sure that there is uh, affordable long-term capital that's available. The, uh, the bottleneck is that because the upfront costs of putting in place some of these new technologies tends to be higher than the upfront cost, capital cost, of constructing a uh, new fossil fuel-powered electric uh, power uh, generation. Countries that are short of capital tend to go for the, uh, uh, for the fossil fuel uh, power, uh, and that's what we uh, need to avoid. 
So I just want to change tack a little bit and talk about the middle class and jobs and AI and automation. You say that in some advanced economies, two ladders that the middle classes have climbed are being pushed aside, the advancement of individuals in their own lifetimes and the advancement of their children. Is that about technological change or is it about more than that? It is about technological change. It's about the uh, the fact that technological change has to happen on such a huge scale. The structure of the economy needs to change in such dramatic ways that everybody will be affected. And that does pose very difficult issues of uh, transition. You know, if you're a coal miner and there's no more demand for coal, what do you do? It's it's not a, uh, a simple uh, issue. Uh, you might be uh, forced to uproot yourself and your uh, family and uh, uh, move uh, somewhere else. There are very few alternative job opportunities in uh, some of these uh, areas. If uh, the wave of the future is for electric vehicles and electric vehicle production shifts away from uh, Detroit, uh, what are auto workers uh, going to do? Uh, the uh, you know the biggest electric vehicle uh, manufacturers uh, today are in uh, China and um, you know even places like uh, Vietnam. Uh, what's going to happen to all of the auto workers in uh, Europe? So many of these things, which have historically been what I would call good middle class jobs, are being disrupted and uh, might shift, and that will pose big transition issues for uh, uh, for uh, people, uh, especially for uh, uh, people who are whose alternative options are uh, limited uh, because they have relatively speaking, lower levels of education and uh, fewer skills than others in the uh, economy. That same kind of uh, uh, worry and concern about where are the good new jobs of the future uh, is something that uh, affects young people. You know, it used to be that college education was seen as an absolute fail-safe ticket to the uh, middle class. You could go to college, you choose your major, and then you move into a middle-class job. Now it's much more uncertain because you just don't know exactly what this new economic structure is going to look like and what skills are going to be most in demand in the future. Uh, We talk about so-called STEM skills, Um, But that's even that is uh, quite vague. And now there are threats to uh, STEM skills from the new technologies like AI. We we hear so much about AI and what it can do and how it can do all the thinking tasks that we thought were our middle class tasks. If AI takes over swathes of those kind of roles, what is left? Well, I think there's a uh, good news and a bad news uh, story. The good news is that uh, if AI really does take over all of these uh, jobs, what it means is that productivity will go through the roof. So we'll all become much, much richer if the benefits from uh, AI are appropriately shared within society. 
we will then have achieved what uh, Keynes actually forecast uh, many years ago uh, when in uh, 1930 he wrote, you know, in a hundred years, we will have, quote unquote, solved the economic problem of our generation. People won't need to uh, work in order to uh, live. So if AI really does take all of these jobs, we will get a huge amount of uh, time uh, freed up and we have to discover meaning in life by using that time in uh, new ways. It could be creative ways uh, and uh, for some of us, unfortunately, no, not myself, but some of us do have uh, real artistic creativity uh, parts to them, uh, uh, to their personalities. Uh, it could be by uh, volunteering. Uh, it could be by doing a uh, host of things that, uh, you know, ultimately help us to build our social connections, our, uh, uh, build our uh, local uh, communities uh, in ways that right now we just really don't have uh, time for, but actually are ways that science tells us is the surest route to uh, happiness. So I think that um, we shouldn't be too scared about the uh, uh, opportunities that are uh, offered by uh, AI, uh, but it does depend on two things. It depends on the benefits being broadly shared, and it depends on uh, us being able to uh, understand that there is uh, meaning to uh, life even outside of work. It's, it's a strange one, isn't it? Because we're so used to working um, that sometimes even, even people facing retirement think, what am I going to do with myself? And it's a failure of imagination. Um, but that's interesting that um, instead of looking at AI as a sort of awful black cloud, um, it, it could be the sunny uplands in terms of our quality of life. I'm certainly uh, not uh, uh, looking forward to uh, uh, retiring, and um, I'm uh, quite happy that uh, I have spent the uh, majority of uh, my life uh, having a a decent work. But I have to admit that uh, these days, uh, when I embark on a uh, new project, uh, I do start by uh, asking uh, ChatGPT, what it has to uh, say about the uh, topic that I am uh, thinking about uh, and the uh, basic uh, yardstick for uh, myself is, is there something that I can say or do that is better than what ChatGPT is already doing? I love I love that. So, so ChatGPT is now our competition and our incentive to do better. Exactly. <laughs> you mentioned the words ex- existential challenge um, earlier in our chat. And if you take climate change and if you take uh, this big work transition that we've talked about together, that is an existential challenge. And you say in your book, and I, I'm going to quote this, the challenges to maintaining a big tent middle class are greater than they have been since the early days of the 19th century when the middle class was just starting to achieve political power. So my question is, how does the middle class respond? I think the biggest issue is that the middle class needs to embrace change. And that's not something that comes naturally to the uh, middle class. Historically, the middle class has always tried to avoid change 
uh, and to uh, uh, reduce levels of uh, uncertainty. Uh, but we do need a uh, new narrative. I think the middle class has to be uh, confident that uh, jobs are not finite, uh, that there always will be uh, work uh, with meaning, uh, or at least an ability to occupy one's time with uh, meaning. Uh, you know, the, the care economy is an example of a huge new area where the threat from AI is uh, really quite uh, small. Uh, it doesn't look like a good middle-class occupation uh, right now because it's an area that isn't uh, properly uh, monetized. Uh, but one of the things that we need to do is to uh, start to make sure that the prices that we have in our capitalist economy actually reflect scarcity in a proper way, and then we can find the most efficient ways of uh, moving uh, forward. So very, uh, uh, you know, very bluntly, it's the middle class that has to invent a sustainable economy. We do not right now have a sustainable economy anywhere in the world. And it's up to the middle class to try to invent that. It's a big responsibility. So let, let, let's just finish on a, on a couple of very quick questions, um, just to sort of round off our, our chat. Um, what makes you most pessimistic? I would say that right now, I worry that uh, our uh, politics in uh, many countries uh, seem to be influenced by uh, elites that uh, still favor fossil fuels, uh, that are uh, still uh, uh, wasting huge amounts of uh, material uh, resources, uh, that still feel that uh, uh, they have the, uh, the right to uh, destroy uh, nature, uh, and they are slowing and blocking uh, the kinds of uh, rapid government interventions that we need. And what would make you more optimistic? I think we now have billion strong coalitions for uh, change uh, that are being that uh, these coalitions are being spearheaded by the uh, middle class and they're springing up all over the uh, world. And young people in particular are uh, leading this change because they're the ones who see the threat to their futures as being uh, uh, biggest. Can those billions um, forge links that are strong enough with each other to make it a true global effort? Well, I think because they uh, share the same desires for uh, living the good life, uh, even if there are no formal links, meaning I don't see a uh, like an international middle class society springing up, which actually uh, did spring up at the uh, end of the 19th century and the early uh, 20th century to uh, try to get a so-called international middle class uh, going. I don't see that as being uh, necessarily the uh, solution. But if the middle class in every country uh, pushes their governments in the same direction, and if in certainly most of the large economies in the uh, world, we now have a large and vibrant uh, middle class, then all of the governments will be uh, uh, pushed to respond in uh, similar ways. And we will get collective action, not because governments are trying to uh, uh, 
act in a cooperative fashion, but just because governments are responding to their own domestic uh, political constituencies uh, that are uh, uh, based in the uh, middle class. Uh, and so that's the way in which uh, change, I think, will uh, happen. And I'm excited to see it uh, uh, starting to happen now in more and more countries. So not power to the people, but power to the middle class people. That's, that's, that, that's where the power currently lies in our economy. Thank you so much, Homie. It's been a fascinating talk and I, I really enjoyed reading your book. So I recommend it to our listeners. Thank you so much, uh, Janet. It's been a pleasure. Forward Thinking is a production of the McKinsey Global Institute. Find us online at mckinsey.com MGI or at McKinsey underscore MGI on Twitter. Forward Thinking is hosted by Janet Bush and me, Michael Chewy. Our audio engineer is Colin Morin. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, or review us wherever you get your podcasts. The opinions expressed by podcast guests are their own and do not reflect the views or opinions of the McKinsey Global Institute. References to specific products, services, or organizations do not constitute any endorsement or recommendation by MGI. 